Section 48 of The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Irma Martin. The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. Part 2, Book the Second, Chapter 2, Dia. That boy was at this time a man. Fifteen years had elapsed. It was in 1705. Gwynplaine was in his twenty-fifth year. Ursus had kept the two children with him. They were a group of wanderers. Ursus and Homo had aged. Ursus had become quite bald. The wolf was growing gray. The age of wolves is not ascertained like that of dogs. According to Moliere, there are wolves which live to eighty, amongst others the little Copara and the rank wolf the Canis Nubilis of Say. The little girl found on the dead woman was now a tall creature of sixteen, with brown hair, slight, fragile, almost trembling from delicacy, and almost inspiring fear, lest she should break. Admirably beautiful, her eyes full of light yet blind. That fatal winter night, which threw down the beggar woman and her infant in the snow, had struck a double blow. It had killed the mother and blinded the child. Guta Serena had forever paralyzed the eyes of the girl, now become woman in her turn. On her face, through which the light of day never passed, the depressed corners of the mouth indicated the bitterness of the privation. Her eyes, large and clear, had a strange quality. Extinguished forever to her, to others they were brilliant. They were mysterious torches lighting only the outside. They gave light, but possessed it not. These sightless eyes were resplendent. A captive of shadow, she lighted up the dull place she inhabited, from the depth of her incurable darkness, from behind the black wall called blindness, she flung her rays. She saw not the sun without, but her soul was perceptible from within. In her dead look there was a celestial earnestness. She was the night and from the irremediable darkness with which she was amalgamated she came out a star. Ursus, with his mania for Latin names, had christened her Dia. He had taken his wolf into consultation. He had said to him, You represent man, I represent the beasts. We are of the lower world. This little one shall represent the world on high. Such feebleness is all-powerful. In this manner the universe shall be complete in our hut in its three orders, human, animal, and divine. The wolf made no objection. Therefore the foundling was called Dia. As to Gwynplaine, Ursus had not had the trouble of inventing a name for him. The morning of the day on which he had realized the disfigurement of the little boy and the blindness of the infant, he had asked him, Boy, what is your name? And the boy had answered, they call me Gwynplaine. Be Gwynplaine, then, said Ursus. Dia assisted Gwynplaine in his performances. If human misery could be summed up, it might have been summed up in Gwynplaine and Dia. Each seemed born in a compartment of the sepulchre, Gwynplaine in the horrible, Dia in the darkness. Their existences were shadowed by two different kinds of darkness, taken from the two formidable sides of night. Dia had that shadow in her. Gwynplaine had it on him. 
There was a phantom in Dia, a spectre in Gwynplaine. Dia was sunk in the mournful, Gwynplaine in something worse. There was for Gwynplaine, who could see, a heart-rendering possibility that existed not for Dia, who was blind. He could compare himself with other men. Now in a situation such as that of Gwynplaine, admitting that he should seek to examine it, to compare himself with others was to understand himself no more. To have, like Dia, empty sight from which the world is absent, is a supreme distress, yet less than to be an enigma to oneself. To feel that something is wanting here as well, and that something oneself. To see the universe and not to see oneself. Dia had a veil over her, the night. Gwynplaine, a mask, his face. Inexpressible fact, it was by his own flesh that Gwynplaine was masked. What his visage had been, he knew not. His face had vanished. They had affixed to him a false self. He had for a face a disappearance. His head lived, his face was dead. He never remembered to have seen it. Mankind was for Gwynplaine, as for Dia, an exterior fact. It was far off. She was alone, he was alone. The isolation of Dia was funeral. She saw nothing. That of Gwynplaine sinister, he saw all things. For Dia, creation never passed the bounds of touch and hearing. Reality was bounded, limited, short, immediately lost. Nothing was infinite to her but darkness. For Gwynplaine to live was to have the crowd forever before him and outside him. Dia was the proscribed from light, Gwynplaine the band of life. They were beyond the pale of hope, and had reached the depth of possible calamity. They had sunk into it, both of them. An observer who had watched them would have felt his reverie melt into immeasurable pity. What must they not have suffered? The degree of misfortune weighed visibly on these human creatures, and never had fate encompassed two beings who had done nothing to deserve it, and more clearly turned destiny into torture and life into hell. They were in a paradise. They were in love. Gwynplaine adored Dia. Dia idolized Gwynplaine. How beautiful you are, she would say to him. End of section 48